Hi, this is John. Uh, in lieu of our normal noir book ending, Matthew and I are going to be doing some thank yous and some acknowledgements. Uh, since this is a very special episode, um, this project has been something that's been really important to both of us for a long time, not just because we've been doing it for so many years, but we are both big fans of this genre and this industry and these characters and doing this together has been a great way for the two of us to continue to keep in contact uh, despite moves and jobs and life events thank you matt for agreeing to do this insanity with me this ridiculous academic exercise thank you to my friends and family and loved ones who listen to this podcast um for some reason other than you know obviously supporting somebody that they know i'm sure some of them actually enjoy it um thank you to you listeners who we don't know who also enjoy this podcast and just enjoy listening to two random people wax on and off about um characters that they love that don't exist in real life Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed every episode, including this one you're about to listen to, and we hope you enjoy the rest that we continue to do. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible finish. We've done that a hundred times. We have. Uh, and I think we've only screwed it up like five. I think in, I think that's correct. However, A, I think they were bunched up. And B, like we went through a good like 30 episodes. Stre- eh, less than that probably. But we went through a while where we played around with it. Oh, yeah. No, we were, we were touch and go for some of those early ones. Remember when we didn't used to have Joanne? That's right. I forgot... <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder when you came, when did you come up with Joanne? Was that was Joanne, Silver Age? I think Joanne was Golden Age because remember she got updated in the Silver Age. She got a, she got new textures and everything. Um, we didn't have Joanne at first because we were very meandery. If you go back to our very first episodes, they're a little bit longer, a little over an hour in some spaces, um, and we go into like story beats for each of these stories. And we slowly came to the realization that we didn't have to do that. And we shouldn't do that. And uh, we came up with Joanne, or rather we hired Joanne, and uh, she has been our shot clock ever since. Um, Joanne, take a bow. I get back to work. Um, it's alright, I can talk to her like that, she's not real. Uh, <laughs> she's not a real person. She's a, she's a fake figment of my imagination that I use to illustrate the concept of time while doing a podcast. Let me have this. Let me have they, some control they, over something in my life. <laughs> There we go. They couldn't see the face that I was making earlier, but it was a little comical. But Come on, man. It's like, I've only, it's, it's, let me have my imaginary friends whom I'm in control of. Fair. <laughs> uh, anyway, we appreciate Joanne because she does keep us on task and she does have a very important voice here at the podcast, which is to tell us to shut the fuck up and uh, get on with the show when things are dragging on too long. Except today, Joanne gets to take a break. She gets to kick her feet up and relax. Uh, because it's a war, it's our 100th episode, so that's kind of special in some form or another. Uh, we've been doing this for almost four years, Matt and I, so that's about 25 episodes a year. Um, we're taking this episode specifically to do a bit of a recap, because 100 episodes is a lot, and that's more than some comic series go for. And we want to take this opportunity to go back, talk about some of the stuff that we've covered, give you a summary of some of the time, time periods, and characters that this podcast has focused on. So we're going to do a little bit of a, of a, you know, where are they now kind of a moment, uh, and do some summaries and backstories for certain characters that we have, we have spent full episodes on. I say full episodes because there have been a couple of characters that have shown up in the Dramatis Personae over the years, uh, namely some of the characters from the JSA, let's say Our Man... Uh, the Atom from the Golden Age, 
um, Doctor Midnight. Those care, you know, Johnny Thunder. We haven't had full episodes devoted to those characters. Uh, for example, also in the Silver Age, the Elongated Man. He seems to be a team up guy in everybody else's books, but he will eventually get his own series. When we when we get there, um, we will cover him individually. I promise. Um, so this will be dedicated to people who we have had singular episodes about, and we have focused on specifically. Um, that can be small groups like the Challengers of the Unknown, the JSA the uh, Justice League of America, or uh, the Metal Men, as well as singular individuals like Kara Zor-El, the Supergirl, or uh, let's say the Atom, or Shazam from the Golden Age. So we're going to be going through a lot of them, but Matt will also be taking us through a little bit of a tour of the time periods in which these comics were also being published, and so you can get a kind of scope for the length of time that we have covered between 1932-33 to 1963-64, where we are currently at in our coverage. It's a long time. That's a lot of literature. I have spent a lot of money on this podcast, and it's weird to have read that many things and to give ourselves book reports for fun. But here we are for you and your enjoyment. Now, before we dive straight into it, one last thing. I've taken the liberty because SoundCloud lets me do this and iTunes does not, to make playlists for each individual character or group that has gotten their own episode. So if you go to the DC Detectives podcast SoundCloud, you will see that there is a vast amount of playlists that have just popped up. So if you are looking for a specific character, say Batman or Silver Age Green Lantern, you can find those things and just listen to the episodes that those characters are in. Those will include large-scale team-ups when they are part of a team, such as a JLA or a JSA team-up, as well as the individual stories. Guest appearances are not included in those playlists because I said so and I had to draw the line somewhere. So characters will guest appear and guest star, like Green Lantern will show up in Flash comics and etc. That does not mean that the Flash episodes in which he shows up in are also part of his playlist because technically those are Flash stories and not Green Lantern stories that he is and also ran in those and not a headliner. So now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, Joanne, you can put your feet up on your desk just this once, sit back with whatever it is that you drink while you're watching us be idiots. And Matt can start with the uh, time hop as we give you a little bit of a brief history of the Golden Age era, and then when he's done with that, I'll tell you a little bit about the characters that we covered. All right. So this is an encapsulation of really what I, how I wound up thinking about it was what I wanted people to be able to take from it. I'll start a little bit with history, and then uh, we can tag back around to some takeaways that I wanted to have from the Golden Age. The key thing to remember is... We start off with Superman in April 1938. Worth remembering, this is the start of the superhero age of comics. It's not the start of comics overall, uh, but for our purposes, it's what we started with. Um, at this stage, the key thing to remember on the international stage is World War II is, well, World War II has started. Let's be clear about that, not in the way that we usually think about it in the West, but at this point, Japan and China have been at war for almost a year. The Spanish Civil War is already far enough along that the Republican forces in Spain are pretty on the ropes. The Angelus, uh, I apologize for mispronunciations, but the annexation of Austria by Germany, that's already happened. The war is in some places active, in other places it's looking inevitable. Uh, so at the same time, in the U.S., the Great Depression, it had been in slow recovery for a while. We had the, the New Deal going on, uh, but there was another recession from fall of 1937 to late 1938. And while it wasn't as bad as the Great Depression was at its nadir, it was bad. Unemployment went from 14.4% in 1937 to 19% in 39. I have historically, like forgotten the degree to which it's still in the midst of things being rough until world war one begins and really production ramps up for the u.s's economy world war one or two 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 <laughs> but uh 
yeah, all of that is to say that things are bad, and they're bad internationally. Like, it makes sense that we start seeing superheroes in this period, and especially that Superman would be so anti-establishment. When things are not looking good for the forces of establishment, which happen to be the forces of liberal or market liberal democracies, it makes sense that the the beacon of hope would be something outside of the establishment. Uh, and we'll talk later on about Superman being the, the activist uh, Superman. Zooming out for a minute and talking about moving away from politics to what else is going on in pop culture, though. Key thing to keep in mind is comics were huge. Uh, and there are enough people reading comics that you can't talk about the pop culture landscape without talking about them to some degree. In 1940, Superman comics were selling 1.25 million copies per month. Uh, for comparison, in 1940, the population of the U.S. was just 132 million, says Wikipedia. That means that roughly one in every hundred people in the U.S. was getting a copy of Superman comics. Not ne- not including every other comic that was running on at the time. Uh, it's and, and the population count that I'm comparing against is all age brackets, not just, like, young kids. It's, we're talking... Um, mammoth uh, piece of pop culture going on. At the same time, we've got the Academy Awards of 1938. It's Snow White, one of the Marx Brothers movies, uh, the original version of A Star is Born. Jackie Robinson joined the Dodgers in 1947. This is simultaneously a long time ago, but also when I think about Marx Brothers movies and the comedic timing of that, it those movies feel modern. Jackie Robinson, I think of as being more of a civil rights icon than, oh, part of the 40s, and, and of course he, he is, but but if the two feel separate, because I associate, we tend to associate the civil rights movement with the 1960s, time is going to be a little bit weird. There are going to be parts of the historical context that we talk about or that you might experience if you read through these uh, and think about, hey, what else is going on at this time? There are going to be some things that feel like they were forever ago and some things that feel like they've always been in place or are recent. And it's all because of context. It's all relative. Uh, The Super Bowl is, what, 30, 40 years younger than Superman? Uh, but it feels like it's been there forever. There are things that feel corny and antiquated because of technical reasons, like the voices in the original He-Man show, or how uh, some Silver Age Flash or Green Lantern comics feel so much more modern when they replace dot printing with flat colors to reprint in a modern graphic novel. Then there are things that just feel like different eras, but they're contemporaneous. We're gonna we've talked about Flash comics of the Silver Age versus the gag. Uh, just for fun Superman stories. Your sense of time is going to be screwy because when we're talking about things this far back, and this is very far back, this is more than 80 years far back, your sense of how long ago it was is based off whether it feels relevant and what the context is. So I want to be very clear from the outset. We're talking about something that was so long ago, but also was real recent. And it's all depending on how you look at it. And with that, I will pass the mic back over to you. Okay. So we covered a number of characters in our Golden Age coverage. And after a certain point, we had to stop because, frankly, getting Golden Age back issues is difficult and also incredibly expensive. And we do this for free because we love you. Not to mention that, but Golden Age back issues tend to not exist very much. Uh, it's very hard. They're very hard to get a hold of. Um, we didn't really think about printing collections of those until very recently. And if we did prior to that, those uh, collections are out of print, making them incredibly expensive. Um, so we covered as many characters as we could to kind of get a broad spectrum of the different type of characters that you would see in the Golden Age, uh, specifically from DC Comics. Now, we didn't cover everything that was under the banner of DC Comics. Um, But we covered characters that were pertaining to the superhero genre that we were interested in and that we were trying to chronicle 
uh, the history of. So with that being said, uh, we're going to start with the big three, obviously, which is Clark Kent, Superman. An alien from a far-off planet, Clark Kent fights evil and injustice as the Man of Steel, Superman. He is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, and able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Stories for Superman were usually uh, strangely politically based with him helping or solving political issues in different countries, him using his superior strength and powers to stop conflicts that normal mortal men would not be able to. Things that were a little bit larger than your average everyday street ruffian, though he did tend to deal with those from time to time, depending on whether or not the mood struck him. Diana, Wonder Woman. Princess of the Amazons on Paradise Island, Diana has come to our world to root out evil and bring peace. By day, she is a military secretary to Steve Trevor for Army Intelligence. But when trouble is around, she becomes Wonder Woman. Uh, Wonder Woman is going to have probably the most significant change between Golden Age and Silver Age purely because her writing team changes and the guy who created her along with the larger team that helped him had a very specific message and very specific ideas that they were trying to impart through Wonder Woman, be it strong, staunch feminism of the 1930s or weird kinks that you may be surprised by. Um, and she will go through a large transformation when we get to the Silver Age. However, her love for Steve Trevor and her involvement in all things to save man's world will remain a constant. Next is Bruce Wayne, the Batman. Rich playboy Bruce Wayne uses his considerable wealth to fight crime in a vengeance-fueled mission to ensure none ever faces the same tragedy he did when he was a child, when his parents were gunned down before his very eyes. Uh, Batman has a similar trajectory to Superman in the fact that he will not change whole cloth, but certain things that he deal with that he deals with will alter in flavor as time changes and as technology advances. Batman and Superman change with the times. Wonder Woman seems to change with the ideas of the years in which she is in. And that's kind of an interesting facet of those three characters, all of which who never stop being published. They just continue from their first date onward. The next groups of characters that we're going to talk about had definitive end published dates in the Golden Age and stopped being published and were revamped in the Silver Age. So a good place to start with these characters is Alan Scott, the Green Lantern. A radio engineer, Alan Scott, finds a magical Green Lantern. With it, he can do extraordinary things such as fly, shield himself, or blast concussive bolts. He cannot, however, affect wood. Because reasons. Uh, Alan Scott will eventually turn into a different character, and the magic Green Lantern will turn into something very science-based. Uh, he used to fight Nazis and uh, criminals that were somewhat low-level, similar to the criminals that Batman would face that are somewhat street-level and contained within a small city. But he never quite rose to the ranks of Superman until he joined a larger group. Jay Garrick, The Flash, a scientist. Garrick gains his powers by accidentally inhaling the fumes from his hard water experiments, which I still maintain as he's just trying to make ice. These give him the ability to run at great speeds, and Garrick dons the red shirt and metal hat, calling himself the Flash. Jay Garrick is another one of those characters who you'll probably know his predecessor much more than him, uh, much no, much more than him, even though he is appearing in a television show currently running. Um, the Flash is kind of exactly what it says. He ran around real fast. He dealt with kind of science-based bad guys, but also regular uh, rough-and-tumble criminals. Carter Hall and Shaira Sanders, Hawkman and Hawkgirl. A pair of lovers reincarnated throughout history, Carter and Shaira have found each other over the centuries since ancient Egypt. Now they are wealthy aristocrats and fight crime as Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Uh, one of the stranger duos in the Golden Age, but not necessarily the strangest characters, these two will go through a radical change. Um, not radical as in like that was dope, but radical in extreme uh, and shocking as the comics code will start to change certain things about how magic is viewed in comics and why we can't do certain things like that. So Hawkman and Hawkgirl will get an almost from the ground up revamp except for their names. Kent Nelson, Dr. Fate. 
Kent Nelson is a young boy following his father, an archaeologist in Egypt. After his father is killed in an accident, the Lord of Order Nabu ages Kent up to adulthood and teaches him the mystic arts so he can be Dr. Fate. We kind of forget about the fact that Kent Nelson used to be a small child and now he's Dr. Fate, but here we are and he's got a girlfriend now and that's probably kind of weird. Um, Kent Nelson is the proto version of, let's say, Dr. Strange from Marvel. Uh, Dr. Fate is the Sorcerer Supreme, for lack of a better term, of Earth, and he's a Lord of Order. Uh, and he fights mystical uh, bad guys and threats that come to our world. Dinah Drake, the Black Canary. Dinah Drake runs a flower shop and is frequently pursued by a private eye while there. At night, however, she becomes the vigilante Black Canary, but is often mistaken for a criminal. Kind of a, you know, somewhat of the femme fatale uh, motif for Black Canary here. Uh, a woman believed to be a criminal because she's doing something that she shouldn't be doing, but really she's helping people. Um, again, she will also have a name change in the Silver Age, but we have not covered her in her Silver Age incarnation as of yet. Billy Batson, Shazam. Young Billy Batson is an orphan doing what he can to survive. One day, on a magical subway train, he is taken to the wizard Shazam. There, he is given the powers of Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury to become the hero Shazam. Uh, Billy is probably one of the most interesting characters because he initially wasn't a DC Comics character. Shazam was an interesting book because it was very much a Superman book fighting mad scientists and criminals, but it also had the uh, aspect that Batman had with Robin imbued in it because Billy was a child becoming a superhero. Um, our episode on that is... Uh, specifically centered around Billy and kind of the implications of having a child like that fight crime. Wesley Dodds, the Sandman. Steel magnate Wesley Dodds fights crime at night as the Sandman, a vigilante with a sleeping gas gun. Pretty much what it says on the tin, think Batman, except instead of a utility belt, he has a gun that shoots sleeping gas pellets and puts people to sleep. Now, most of these characters, excluding the Trinity uh, and excluding Shazam, joined a group called the Justice Society of America, which was uh, full of a roster of these characters. Uh, Green Lantern, Hawkman, The Atom, The Flash, The Sandman, Black Canary, Our Man, Doctor Midnight, and Johnny Thunder. Now, we have several episodes about the Justice Society of America that you can go listen to, where we talk about who those characters are that we didn't mention. Um, but as a group, they uh, fought you know, Nash international threats that were either going to lead to war or were sometimes like war profiteering or uh, scientists from a war that were trying to do something nasty. Uh, what you would think a group of superheroes would end up doing um, in kind of the first incarnation of a super team. Again, this was all in the golden age um, from about the 1930s to the 1950s, still before Marvel Comics was even a company. And then the comics code happens. So I think I'm going to hand that over to Matt to give you a brief overview of the comics code. So to talk about the comics code, it's important to take a minute to talk about what happens in the tail end of the golden age. So I'm going to sprinkle in some little bits of like changes in structure, uh, as things go. Uh, but when we were in the golden age, we were talking about comics that were fundamentally anthology bricks, really. Uh, comics started off the, I think, I think all of the comics that we were reading uh, were about 68 pages and 10 cents per issue. And usually they'd be anthology comics with a bunch of different like stories in there uh, not just a bunch of different stories rather but a bunch of different characters as well uh if it was a character f like specific comic like hey superman number five okay yeah everything in there is going to be superman but by and large you'd have things like action comics 68 pages and you'd have five different characters in there or whatever uh and as the golden age goes we have rising costs because inflation happens and rather than exp rather than uh increase the price they'll trim the pages things will get more kid oriented the series we covered tended towards like hey fellow kids banter and childish sidekicks like doiby dickles and derby lantern and, eh, in green lantern uh superboy in 1944 and then 
eventually comics shift away from superhero comics. They're not entirely, but they stop being the dominant genre. Superheroes, right around 1947, they stop being dominant. It shifts towards crime for two years, romance from 1950 to 1952, horror from 1952 to 1954. And then the comics code comes to a head at 1954 to 1955. So to talk about that a little bit, we have to talk, we have to give some broader picture as well, not just in comics, but in culture, especially youth culture in general and the context that it's in, because the character of youth was changing in the 40s and 50s. After World War II ended the Great Depression, the new generation had money and independence. Young people had the money to spend on consumer goods, like like zoot suits in the 40s. Uh, cars became wildly available in the 50s, and with it, the idea of teenagers. Teenagers as a separate age range didn't exist until cars come along and that generation, that age range starts asserting its independence. So you have young people living differently than their parents did, which is going to provoke a backlash. Uh, almost as soon as World War II ended, the Cold War began. Importantly, in the first few years, and I'm going to stress this, the U.S. is losing. Or, probably more accurately, it's getting handed defeats even if the board as a whole is in the favor of the U.S., China goes communist, the Soviets get nukes, and in response to all of that, you have uh, J. Edgar Hoover, go, uh, the head of the FBI for a number of years, goes on an anti-communist witch hunt, and you have McCarthyism start. The Comics Code, in some ways, is part of the same cultural backlash and uh, regressiveness that comes from the Cold War Red Scares. They are not directly tied, but you can see the same reactionary politics in play with both. I'm going to start with a controversial statement. While I definitely don't agree with it, I understand why mainstream America was terrified of communist infiltration. So first, communist parties in most nations took their orders from Moscow. This doesn't mean that all leftist and labor parties followed the Soviet party line but the Communist Party of the USA certainly did. One of the classic examples is communist parties across the Western world changed their opinion of Hitler as soon as the non-aggression pact between the USSR and Nazi Germany was signed, and then they went back again right as soon as he invaded the USSR. Um, second, communism had an international appeal, and as a result, the Soviet Union had incredible spy networks. The best example is that the USSR was able to develop nuclear weapons much faster than expected, because of espionage. By the time McCarthyism happened, America had already been burned by Soviet spies. So I can follow the leap from they think differently, they behave differently, to their threat to national security. I don't agree with it, but I see the logic. And all of this is, let me pull this all back together, this is an opening for bigots and reactionaries who use the moment to try to impose cultural controls on America. That's what we see here. American paranoia about the Soviets inflames the generational backlash against the new teenagers. Uh, and that's how we come back to how this hit comics. So you have a broader cultural milieu that is going reactionary, that is clamping down on things that are different ways of thinking and on things that are perceived as corrupting influence. And that's how the in earlier timeline of what comics were prevalent at what time comes into play. Remember, by this time, by the time of this crisis, superheroes weren't the dominant genre in comics. I want to reiterate that because it's important. The comics code is not a response to superhero comics. By this point, Crime, romance, and then horror comics are the dominant genre. Sex and violence, even if the degree was exaggerated by the reactionaries, that's what these comics are about, at least on an underlying level. In particular, crime comics undermine copaganda, and hence the authority of the state, and romance comics undermine the idea of the patriarchal nuclear family because you have, uh, you have women who are empowered. These things, uh, like 
patri the patriarchal nuclear family and propaganda, these things were integral to the American mainstream culture that was seen as a bulwark against communism. So the anti-comics crusade is a reactionary movement empowered by the international political situation. Here's the other thing that's worth noting. The comics industry flubbed handling this. The comics code was a massive PR failure, if you want to boil it down, because you know how we have the MPAA and it's a voluntary organization for comics or for movies to uh, essentially self-regulate. Hey, here's the here are the kinds of movies that we'll allow kids to see. The comics code or the comics industry did not have that. Uh, there's just no self-regulation and no PR to get the public's confidence back. So what happens is in this time where comics are being called literally to the Senate floor to account for the fact that, hey, there are kids reading a bunch of legitimately disconcerting sometimes, like re real horror comics, stuff that I would read now and it's like, oh, this is this is serious horror. All right. Uh at a time where things are inflamed to 11, comics gets called to the Senate floor and just drops the ball completely, just utterly fails at those interviews. Uh, you think about how uh, national public television, uh, there was that testimony from uh, Fred Rogers that turned that whole thing around. This is the anti-that. Uh, comics get called onto the Senate floor and just completely fail at uh trying to deflect any kind of blame so as a result the once everything blows up the only way to get the public's confidence back is the comics code it's a draconian code run by outsiders uh the result of the comics code was a variety of restrictions on comics minimizing violence minimizing sexuality requiring the state in the form of law and order to be viewed as pure and triumphant uh so you have the imposition of reactionary politics and reactionary culture through this code that has to approve every comic that can be published. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't get the seal and everyone knows, oh, if it everyone is all of the consumers are tuned to look for that kid tested mother approved uh, comics code label. Uh, here's where everything else in the grand out in the broader milieu comes into play it's not just those rules it's also the enforcers of the comics code block publications of stories with people of color as the protagonist they disproportionately censor romance comics and there's the thing because they neutered all of these other genres and comics suddenly superhero comics start looking like a good bet we're so used to associating at least i'm so used to associating superhero comics with the genre the comics industry as a whole that it's easy to forget this is not this wasn't about superhero comics they were the beneficiaries and suddenly there's breathing space made for comics to switch back toward or to pivot back towards superhero comics Two years after uh, the Comics Code comes out in 1955, we get the start of the Silver Age with The Flash. They, DC starts pushing superhero comics hard. And with that, we will talk about some Silver Age characters. I know Matt just mentioned The Flash, but we'll start again with the Trinity just for consistency's sake. Bruce Wayne, Batman. Intelligent, rich, and skilled in combat, Bruce Wayne fights crime as the Batman with his sidekick Robin and his butler at home, Alfred, keeping the home front safe in the city of Gotham. Pretty much the same thing that it says on the tin here, except now he travels through time and has a plane and a boat and a car and things are wacky and wild with new colorful villains. Kal-El, Clark Kent, the Superman. The last son of a doomed planet, Kal-El was sent to Earth by his parents. Raised by the Kents, Clark protects the city of Metropolis and the universe. A lot more going into space now. He flies, he has all sorts of different powers, and he's incredibly more powerful than he used to be. My favorite thing to give an analogy of this is when before he would jump and have trouble with 
you know, trains hurting him or getting shocked by electricity. Now he sneezes entire solar systems out of existence. Diana Prince, Wonder Woman. Princess of the Amazons, she saves our planet and fights for a day when she is no longer needed. Meanwhile, Steve Trevor continues to pursue her hand in marriage. A little bit kind of a role reversal here with Steve Trevor chasing the woman as, uh, as opposed to Diana in the Golden Age chasing Steve Trevor. Um, we also kind of get the thing that Diana is no longer really got an alter ego in the Silver Age. She's no longer a secretary. She's more just Wonder Woman all the time. We do have some Diana stuff. But it's more focused on her being Wonder Woman and the pursuit of a day in which she is no longer needed. Then we'll go to Barry Allen, The Flash. Struck by lightning in his forensic science lab, Barry Allen is now the fastest man alive. The Flash, fighting villains in Central City. Uh, similar to Jay Garrick getting his powers in a laboratory, this time Barry Allen is much more scientifically inclined where Jay used to kind of sort of do science and kind of would forget about it because being a superhero is just so darn fun. Barry is a scientist through and through chasing a girlfriend who he's engaged to and fighting multiple costume villains who all have something to do with different sort of scientific theories be they uh, intelligent animals that can deal with telepathy to men who have guns that have different elemental properties. Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern. Coast City test pilot Hal Jordan wields the Green Lantern ring, which feeds off of his willpower and allows him to do pretty much anything. Despite its weakness to yellow, the ring is a powerful weapon made by the Guardians of the Universe, the leaders of the Green Lantern Corps across the entire galaxy. So, no more Magic Lantern, hello, super science weapon of the future from another planet. Hal does a lot of space travel and dimensional travel and fights supervillains who try to one-up him with their own wits and intelligence while Hal uses his willpower and can-do attitude to kind of overcome them. Not a dumb guy, but certainly someone who is very blue-collar and fisticuffs. Jean Jeans, the Martian Manhunter. Stranded on Earth by Professor Erdell's computer brain, the Martian solves crimes as Detective John Jones and keeps his identity secret from the humans he works alongside. Um, following probably very heavily into the copaganda sort of theme here, uh, John Jones, Jean Jeans, is a well-known and well-respected detective in his city, and he has kind of the bad end of the stick here with his books being pretty much about everything that the Golden Age was about, except now in the Silver Age, so they're less entertaining, and they don't really lean into the fact that he's an alien. Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow. Stranded on a deserted island, Oliver Queen teaches himself how to survive with nothing but a bow and arrow. When he returns home, he uses his newfound talents to fight crimes and right wrongs as the Green Arrow. Very much a, hey, if Batman works, why couldn't another guy with a different gimmick work? Sort of a mentality here. Uh, he has his own sidekick as well named Speedy, Roy Harper. And it is almost a carbon copy of Batman fighting the same types of villains. Maybe not time travel and maybe not space travel, but certainly doing a lot of the same things that Batman did in the Golden Age, but now in the Silver Age, which is why he probably didn't have as much of a successful run uh, and he's the only character to date that we have covered that has had his run end while we have covered him. Katar Hall and Shaira Hall, Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Alien police op officers from the planet Thanagar, Katar and Shaira, have come to Earth to study our crime-solving methods and travel between their world and ours as Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Um, not so much into the copaganda thing as you might think with the comics code, more so that they're superheroes who have the terminology that they are cops on their own planet. Um, as I said before, in the Golden Age, these are complete revamps from the ground up, minus some phonetic misspellings of their names. Um, and they're no longer reincarnated folks, so we don't have to deal with the weird, spooky mysticism of the East. And they're aliens, so that's much more palatable, I suppose, and much more sci-fi and cool. Adam Strange. An anthropologist who is transported through time and space to the alien world Ran, Adam fights perils from beyond the stars with his beloved Alana before he's whisked back to Earth when the radiation wears off from his journey. Um, I really, uh, you know, I'm not sure, and this is probably something I could have looked into, and I just didn't, but I don't know when Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars is published, 
But Adam Strange is very much John Carter of Mars, a guy who is transported from Earth to a new planet where he becomes a hero and secretly and desperately continues to try to get back to that planet to be with his beloved and be on a planet that fascinates him and excites him. Captain Internet says a 1912 debut of the character. Okay, so Adam Strange is a repackage of John Carter of Mars, for those of you playing at home. The Challengers of the Unknown. Ace, Red, Rocky, and Professor Haley all survive a harrowing crash that stops their watches, but not their hearts. Believing they are men living on borrowed time, they use their special talents to fight exciting terrors that threaten the planet. Uh, the Challengers of the Unknown are a unique sort of beast in that they are probably doing all the cool things that you would imagine Green Arrow and Jean Jeans would be doing, but aren't. So four random guys who just happen to have personalities like the Ninja Turtles are doing cool stuff in space and time, and for the sake of it. They're a fun comic to read, but they are definitely one of those things where you're like, this feels like a weird thing to be doing with just four normal dudes and not the superheroes that we've clearly made. Ray Palmer, the Atom. Finding a strange element that allows him to shrink to an amazing size, Ray Palmer uses his matter reduction powers to fight crime and solve scientific puzzles as the Atom. So Ray Palmer is one of those characters that you can just kind of tell somebody said, what if we had a guy that shrinks? And it just worked. And we didn't really talk too much about it, uh, other than a couple of episodes that we've had with him and the episodes of JLA that he's in. Um, But the Atom is a fun kind of character that kind of exemplifies the idea that they were really trying to push science and scientific plot lines after the comics code. And they're genuinely fun. They're just not standout comics. Kara Zor-El, Supergirl. One of the last survivors from a portion of Krypton that survived the terrifying explosion that destroyed it, Kara was sent off to Earth to be with her cousin. Hiding now as an adopted daughter to a loving family, she helps her cousin out in secret to aid him in his battle for truth and justice. Kara is probably the only sidekick who has her own book at the moment, while Kid Flash, the Flash's young sidekick, has his own singular offshoot stories. Um... He doesn't have his own book, and Supergirl having her own book is one of those things where you think that it was them trying to appeal to a female audience at the same time, where she's doing almost the same things that Superman does, plot-wise, except she's worried about boys, and she's a young girl, so sometimes they write her in ways that show 1960s chauvinism. The Metal Men. Will Magnus invents the robot team of the Metal Men. Platinum, tin, gold, mercury, lead, and iron. The group deals with high science crises and extraterrestrial threats and often have to replenish their roster due to the dangerous nature of their missions. Now, the Challengers of the Unknown and the Metal Men are in that category of group teams that we cover, and the Metal Men were actually the last episode we did before this episode. And for kind of just summation's sake, they're very much high science fiction, interdimensional, interplanetary uh, adventures that have a diverse cast that tries to have interpersonal drama but isn't quite nailing it just yet but has the seeds of something really interesting. Of course, outside all of this we have the Justice League of America which has The Flash, Green Lantern, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, uh, The Atom, Aquaman, Green Arrow, Martian Manhunter, and I believe that's it. One that we also didn't cover, I can't believe I missed him, uh, was Aquaman, Arthur Curry, son of an Atlantean who now lives on his own outside the city of Atlantis. Arthur Curry saves the ocean from any sort of threat that would befall sailors and people alike, and has his young ward Aqualad to aid him. So, you've got so many characters now, and of course there were almost just as many characters in the Golden Age, we just couldn't find back issues or collections of them all and if we did decide to just cover all of those characters we honestly never would be in the silver age at any point in time we'd still be in the golden age um but the dramatic shift to science fiction time travel uh space travel super science super villains and such is a far cry from the 
criminals that the Golden Age characters dealt with that would probably be believably threatening to a regular public. Um, gangsters, folks who are doing insurance fraud, loan sharks, secret uh, agents of another government or, you know, invading armies. Things that you probably did actually worry about in the 1930s and 40s. And then when we get to the 50s and 60s, we have you know, threats from beyond the stars, which are like the B-movies that you would see in the 1950s. Uh, time travel, because we've got that new sort of thing where we could go back in time and deal with things that aren't necessarily real and see that kind of exciting new historical uh, change of pace. But also you've got veiled hints to the fear of atomic power, the fear of science gone wrong, the fear of science in the wrong hands shown by the villains, um, the obsession with technology that is new and different that we don't know and we can't control um and people who work for the protection of the citizenry having powers that can trump them at any moment let's talk about what's going on in the background of the silver age first off there's a lot going on uh everything that i gave as context for the comics code is still going on to various degrees like the Cold War is in full swing. Uh, important to note, let me... I think 1963 was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Let me consult Dr. Internet. Cuban Missile Crisis was... 1962. Arguably the closest that humanity ever came to a nuclear war. Arguably, there are a bunch of different times. The key thing to keep in mind is that at this point in time... We don't. Ha we didn't have the, the mechanisms that we had later on in the Cold War to ratchet down tensions, um, and also things were just closer. The Cuban Missile Crisis is an instance where there were nuclear missiles being assembled right off the shore of Florida, and we on we being the U.S had nuclear missiles in Turkey, very close to the USSR. This is a period of both high tension, but also high science. Like, the flip side of missiles is rocketry. This was the time of the space race. Uh, we go to the moon, we choose to do this not because it is easy, but because it is hard. This is a period of the challenge to to achieve the promise of modern science, uh, things being put together on not just a high science side, but also like mega project side, the, the amount of people involved in the American uh, space program, the amount of people involved in even more mundane things like UN vaccination efforts, uh, these are these are times where big things are happening at the same time as things are incredibly tense at the same time as pop culture is continuing to happen. Uh, 1955, the year that the Comics Code goes into effect, Disneyland launches. Uh, 1961 is... <laughs> I find it difficult to believe, but it's the first real expansion team periods for the MLB and the NBA. You get the LA Angels. You get the teams that will become the Washington Wizards and the Texas Rangers. This is a time of growth and prosperity and pop culture rising to meet that. 1950s, you have the peak of Elvis and Chuck Berry. 1960s are the Beatles. And in my opinion, the end of the 60s I know I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, uh, <laughs> is the point where music starts to sound modern, if not recent. Uh, 1970 uh, was, all in 1970, the guitar starbation of Clapton's Layla, the early heavy metal of Black Sabbath's debut album, and it's the formation of Queen and Aerosmith. I think for comics, we get that turning point a bit earlier. We get the serious part of the Silver Age, the story arcs and the issues that resonate on that serious, character-driven way, kicking off in the early 60s. Green Lantern. 
and the sexual tension with Carol and Ferris, those romance comic panels, that's 1959. We're talking about this. You talked about the, the, the team comics of, uh, challengers and JLA, uh, you get all of that sort of building up and then the fantastic four debut in 1961 and they set that template of bickering and making up and character driven character relationships uh rather than things being just for the purpose of plot it's building out of character and you remember those three panels of spider-man of peter pushing himself to lift rubble so he can get medicine to aunt may 1965 the silver age is the the 60s in general are a big turning point and it's not just in politics and culture it's also in comics uh and the key thing to think about at that point is uh the silver the silver age starts at different times for different comics it is astounding how different flash and green lantern feel from gagaday uh, Superman and Supergirl comics and Batman. This is a period where things are starting to change decisively across all aspects of life, but they're changing at different rates for different things. The one thing I want to bring up, because this is something that, something that I mapped out, uh, and I do have the spreadsheet somewhere. Um, it's one of the foundational, mm, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit and say myths that Superman started off as a, like, as a socialist at, well, no, the foundational myth is Superman started off as a socialist. And I want to be clear, he was very explicitly a social justice warrior, but it's not for as long as we wish. Because superhero comics came out so shortly before world war ii started there was a brief period where things were just kind of weird and in their own directions and then the war comes along and changes all that and the thing that i want the thing that i think is important to take from that is the degree to which characters are not immutable which i know you could just say they're they're mutable but any any character can be redefined by engaging with the time period in different ways uh there is nothing that would prevent someone from being inspired by the current wave of social justice reform or at least the pushes for it, and embodying that in Superman again. There is nothing preventing that. In the same way that there was nothing preventing Denny O'Neill, uh, R.I.P., setting up and taking a cop law and order authority figure in of Green Lantern in the in the 1970s and doing hard traveling heroes, where he was forced to really confront the effects of the established order every character we we talk about how every character uh you know it's good that we didn't mess it up at the start of the episode because suddenly i'm blanking on the line but uh and every reversible finish these characters are not done they have they are not locked in stone uh and it is to my great joy that comics continues to find ways and places to to stay fresh and relevant and push towards greater good it is i think a hallmark of the genre that the underlying belief stated or not is to be inspiring and to inspire people to do good things. Whether or not that is executed by the writer in question or the company or the people at the company is thoroughly up for debate and can be looked into and researched and debated. But 
you can tell that superheroes from the start were always characters who were trying to do something for someone else. Rarely did we ever have a character doing something for their own benefit, which really only happened, I want to say, in the Silver Age, i.e. Barry Allen trying to do something to make up with his girlfriend who had just said that she was done with all of his bullshit. Um, the first stories started out... I mean, the first Superman story is proving a person who's about to be executed innocent. That's the very first Superman comic. And yes, I understand that the cynicism of the current day and age with characters who are just trying to do good is believed to be shallow by a lot of contemporary readers. But I think they forget that no matter who their character is, be it someone from The Boys or Deadpool or The Punisher or Kick-Ass or um, any of the contemporary comics that people point to and they say like, see, I like dark comics or adult comics. They all still return to the underlying root of trying to do good by somebody else. Superheroes are heroes. Whether or not they are part of an establishment that may or may not be dated and corrupt, they themselves are good people. Matt and I have had plenty of discussions as to whether or not they are actually good people by the actions that they do, but they are intended to be looked at as good individuals. And as schlocky as it sounds, and as hard as it is to swallow now, knowing and seeing the history of this country and watching it in real time, there's something very American, very Americana, about someone just trying to do the right thing. And there's a reason it's influenced other... Uh, it, meaning the genre, has influenced so many other countries, and they have taken their own spins and put their own underlying messages within them um, that are very much those cultures. Um, you'll see this in uh, manga. The desire to do the best that you can and to encourage everyone else to try their best and to be friends is very Japanese and so amazing and so beautifully um, wholesome. And that is in everything from Berserk to Gundam to My Hero Academia. It is an underlying theme. And it's important to remember that things that are used to be inspiring can, of course, be twisted and changed to be something different. Um, the Comics Code did, in fact, make superhero comics propaganda for law and order for a long time, and that's hard to deny, and it's something to acknowledge. Recently, though, as time has moved on and society has uh, become more diverse in America and more aware of its own diversity, the characters are changing to be reflecting of that, which I think is also what an American value should be. It may not be what is being represented by the larger population of America, but it's very American to be diverse and to express that and to be happy about that expression. And I'm glad that we're seeing that. And I, and I encourage everyone to not just look at companies like Marvel and DC for that. Um, the growing groundswell of independent comics that are um, culturally diverse or um, have large editorial teams that are culturally diverse is really inspiring. And the fact that they don't have to make this genre, that, but they can change it and evolve it is beautiful to me. And I think with that, do, do we have any, do you have any other final thoughts? I think that about does it. Uh, go read What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way. Mm-hmm. 
All Star Superman, Hard Traveling Heroes. There's so many, so many great American comics that really do what they were supposed to do. And there are a lot that don't, but there are examples out there. And I'm glad they exist and you can find them and you can read them and look for new stuff. Look for stuff published now. Um, that will also show you the potential that this industry has to do some good stuff. And I think that is what we should be trying to exemplify and cultivate in this industry. Um, we've had a lot of bad stuff happen recently and the takes of two guys like us aren't necessary, but suffice it to say that we are in support of this industry changing for the better and changing so that more voices are heard because everyone's comic with their unique background deserves to be seen and heard and deserves equal fair share and if you want to talk about something you should be able to talk about it and I'm glad indie creators of diverse backgrounds are getting that opportunity mm -hmm. and I hope to see that become much more popular and more commonplace um, than it is unique and new now for the sake of the industry. Um, I think we have time for some recommendations. Um, I can go. I have been trying to increase the stuff that I know on my own because what else am I going to do in quarantine? Um, and I have been using a YouTube channel called Brackies. B-R-A-C-K-E-Y-S. Um, they do a lot of technical computer um, tutorials. Right now I'm taking some C-sharp courses that they have, going through all the tutorials that they have. They also have some Unity tutorials if you're interested in game design. They are very pleasant, very educational, very easy to just jump in and learn something. I have no coding knowledge prior to this, and I'm starting to experiment with code on my own now after all the videos that I've watched. Um, there's forums and groups uh, for those interested in learning more and talking more with folks about that. It's just kind of nice to learn something new. And uh, if you're interested in doing stuff on your computer, because that's what you have available to you right now, um, it's something worth checking out. I have, it's not, I'm not going to call it a recommendation because that implies an endorsement and this will not be for everybody, but it's a thing that I have enjoyed and you have enjoyed. And I, I, some people out there will enjoy it too. Uh, Rebecca and I have been watching a lot of Food Wars. Yeah. And, you know, first off, okay, so first, it is very enjoyable. It is a show about cooking. It is enthusiastic. It is earnestly enthusiastic and joyful about cooking. Like, there, it isn't just, it, it is also talks about oh here's how this was made but also there is a joy to it and the effect of cooking that cooking can have on you the metaphors of ah oh, this this takes me this makes me think of being a kid this this is a joyful experience and all of that is deeply fun and enjoyable and makes me feel good it is also a show where the the things that are great about like tasting a really good dish is represented as orgasmic enjoyment and clothes going everywhere and fan service aplenty and the and all of the care the majority of the of the main characters are 15 it your mileage may vary i actually think it, i i am less uncomfortable with it than i am with like my hero academia because none of the characters are leery your mileage may certainly vary, but I have had a lot of enjoyment from this show and did a little bit of did a little bit of thoughtful cooking uh, when I was doing meal prep for this week. Uh, I'm not going to pretend it turned out well, but I did put different <laughs> ingredients in my uh, rice instant pot. There you go. Well, what a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> A hundred episodes of this 
nonsense. We thank you so much for sticking with us and bearing with us on this weird, indulgent journey of ours for this medium that the two of us love so well. Um, we hope it has been fun for you, and we look forward to spending more time with you as you know the years go on, because we have no plans at the moment to stop doing this. And uh, I enjoy doing this. It's fun. It's interesting. It's educational. I can write it off in my taxes as research. Um, it is a good constant to have in my life, and it's also something that continues to teach me things and, and show me stuff. And the, the more I become aware, the more I see in comics from back then. And it's exciting. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we hope you continue to enjoy this podcast. DC Detectives can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. So stay in the know. Check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hi, this is Matthew. And I want to say thanks. Thanks to the listeners for the little smile I get when someone says they'll give us a try. Thanks to the guests who we had in the early episodes, including Arden Lee and Koi Jandro. Thanks to my girlfriend Rebecca, who's always been entertained by this hobby of mine. And thanks especially to John, because this project you came up with has helped me spend so much time with such a good friend.